Hi, this is Dr. Mark Hyman. Welcome to The Doctor's Pharmacy. Today's guest is Dan Butner, who's an explorer, National Geographic Fellow, an award-winning journalist and producer, and a New York Times best-selling author. He discovered the five places in the world, the blue zones, where people live the longest, healthiest lives. His articles about these places in the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic are two of the most popular for both publications. Butner now works in partnership with municipal governments, large employers, and health insurance companies to implement Blue Zones projects in communities, workplaces, and universities. Blue Zones projects are well-being initiatives that apply lessons from the Blue Zones to the entire community by focusing on changes to the local environment, public policy, and social networks. The program has dramatically improved the health of more than 5 million Americans to date. Welcome, Dan Butner. So welcome, Dan. I'm so happy to have you here in the doctor's pharmacy. I, I want to just get into first a little about your background. How do you get into this whole idea of longevity and wellness? Uh, you were a journalist and an adventurer, and somehow you kind of came upon this sort of new career path of being an advocate for health and wellness. So for years, I led uh, expeditions for National Geographic science expeditions that tried to unravel mysteries. And they were mysteries like, why did the Maya civilization collapse? Did Marco Polo go to China? Um, the human origins. and Sounds like it, the best job in the world. It really was. I had a full-time <laughs> staff of Harvard archaeologists and MIT scientists and National Geographic photographers. And our job was to find cool two cool mysteries every year and solve them. So you're like the Indiana Jones for National Geographic almost. Yeah, I, probably. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I didn't have a whip. And, uh, <laughs> and a hat. Did you have a hat? <laughs> <laughs> Only in my bedroom. Just kidding. <laughs> Scratch that. No. But uh, the... the um, but it was actually a company that led an online audience of mostly students, direct teams of experts to solve mysteries. And around that experience, we wrote curriculum. Um, I, I, I'm more interested in solving mysteries, and I'm really an explorer that that uh, my sense of purpose and what I'm good at is um, going to parts of the world, uh, diving deep into the culture and pulling out wisdom that the rest of us can use. I, mm-hmm. Probably... Uh, translational communications is probably my expertise more than anything. But in 2000, my team came across an interesting fact. The World Health Organization um, named Okinawa as the place in the world with the longest uh, disability-free life expectancy in the Mm -hmm. world. So they have what we want. They live a long time managed to elude most chronic disease and then die fairly quickly. Yeah, we, we call that the rectangularization of the survival curve. You, yeah, yeah, there, you don't yeah. die long, painful, yeah, slow you death. You, you, yeah, you live a long time, healthy, well, and boom, you're dead. Yeah, so that, that's kind of what you want to do. You know, go to bed one night and, you know, have good sex and wake up and, that's you know, right. you're... You, you That's how I'm going to go. I'm, I'm going to go rent a lake, a cabin by the lake, make love with my wife, yeah. uh, have a bottle of wine, take a yeah. swim, and then that's it. And ideally, we want to see you do that at... 120. Uh, 120, yes, which is possible. So Okinawans were doing that better, and I thought, aha, that's a great mystery. And really, that was kind of the founding of Blue Zones in 2000. And um, that, that expedition was hugely successful. And... I had the idea that if there are, uh, if there's a, a, a blue zone area, an area where people live a long time in, in Asia, there must be other areas in Europe and Latin America and the United States. And I, I got funding from the National Institutes on Aging to hire demographers to do the science of 
population to find statistically longest lived, and then recruited a team of experts to help me distill the sort of common denominators. And most of these are correlations, they're not causation. Yeah. But when you see the same correlations in in, in Asia, in in Europe and Latin America, this layering of of uh, correlation starts to approach causation. Yeah. And um, so you see There's a very, pattern there. very clear pattern emerging, and that's what I've I've focused on Amazing. since then. Amazing, such work, great work. So you know, as you travel around and learn about aging, what are the biggest myths you've had? And and if we all do things right, can we live to be a hundred or more? So the first half of that question, I think the biggest myths are are um, that we can diet our way to good health. If you look at the recidivism curve of diet, they all they they work pretty well for nine months, and they fail for. Um, 95 to 97% of people after two years. Not so, food, but diets you're talking diet, about. Diet, yeah. Right. I think uh, eating the right diet, but getting on a diet right. is what doesn't work. Right. Uh, exercise has been a public health failure, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. I know that's disruptive, but the average American burns fewer than 100 calories a day engaged in exercise. So... You know, we, we, we tell people to go to the gym and do marathons and triathlons, but we don't do it. About mm. 20% of Americans get the necessary amount of exercise. Well, I thought it was eight. That's an improvement. <laughs> well, I think that's 20% of Americans get 30 minutes of physical activity, yeah. including walking. But, yeah. you know, it's a, it's, it is an unmitigated failure. Supplements. I don't believe there are any supplement that will stop slow or reverse aging. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are vitamin deficient. I think it's okay. So I, I would say those are the three big, the big myths. Yeah. And the, the second part of the question was, you know, if we do everything right, can we live to one hundred or okay, more? Okay. So the at the maximum average life expectancy of humans living in the first world in a, in a place where there's not high infectious disease mm-hmm. is about ninety two. Ninety mm. for men, ninety two for women, somewhere mm. in there. So in other words, right now, if you do everything right. Um, you can expect 90 or 92. And, and that's about a dozen m- more years than we're getting. So the right. value proposition is fairly significant. But mm. if you look at... Another the tr- 10% of life or more. Yes. And and the real value proposition is you're biologically a decade younger almost every decade until then. So people want to look good. They want to feel good. They want to mm. have energy. Mm. That's the real value proposition. And then living a long time and then dropping off that cliff you talked about, yeah. dying quickly. So when you add all that up and then the, the healthcare savings, we spend about 90% of our our lifelong healthcare dollars the last uh, few years of our life, two or three years of our lives. Yeah. And um, people who die quickly, they're, they're not spending money no. on being life support. So that's a value proposition. Yeah, they die quickly, painlessly, and cheaply, as opposed yeah. to long, painful, expensive that's, deaths. Yeah, yeah, they're not kicking and screaming on the way out. So so um, can we live to 100? So interestingly, life expectancy uh, for humans has gone up about one year for every four years since about 1840. Mm. So if you look at the projection, the, the, the curve, the trend of that mm. life expectancy curve, if you're middle-aged, theoretically, yes, you should be able to make 100. Now, there's people who were born with the genetic lottery sure. and have great genes, yeah. but that's fewer than 1%. You know, like UB Blake, he said, he's the musician, he said, if I'd known he would live to be over 100, he said, if I'd known I was going to live so long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Ain't it the truth? <laughs> so um, you sort of suggest that life expectancy is possible, it's increasing, but there's some new data that's pretty alarming 
particularly in areas in the South and other areas where there's high diabetes and obesity rates, where life expectancy is actually going down. And it's suggested we may be raising the first generation of kids to live sicker and die younger than their parents. Yeah, S.J. Oshansky yeah. calculated that first. And he's, and he's calculated it could be as much as a five-year drop in life expectancy. Now, they oscillate. You know, life expectancy jumps and then it drops. You know, the year that we had the swine flu, there was a mm-hmm. big drop in life expectancy of the human species. So if you follow that trend line, it's going up. But I would tend to agree with what, Mark, with what you're saying here. That yeah that um, our environment is toxic and it probably is going to uh, portend uh, uh, lower life, life expectancy. expectancy. In the future. Unless we do something about it. Yes. Um, but here we're at this Milken conference, and I don't know if you feel any hope, but the financiers for the first time are really yeah. starting to pay attention to the right things, not just yeah. maximizing their... I mean, they had Jane Goodall here uh, talking about the importance of a plant-based diet. and. Yeah. You know, the, the Mike Melkins of the world, the Stephen Cones are all drinking it up. So yeah. those are the guys that are going to make the difference. You know, I've seen that too. I've seen, you know, I was talking to one of the top guys at Nestle, which you know, I had a pretty negative opinion about. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they're focusing on regenerative agriculture. They're focusing on shifting to organic. They're focusing on yeah. changing the quality of their products. It's, they're, they're being pushed by the market forces that are driving them to make better choices. Same thing with, you know, Pepsi. I was talking to the vice chair of Pepsi and they're, looking at how do we actually move towards a different form of agriculture and preserve water and soils. It's very interesting when you've got these big players starting to change their thinking about what they're doing. And, you know, I, I still am a little dubious about it, but I think it's a good trend because, and then and there's a huge amount of investment, all the venture capitalists here talking about how do we invest in these new businesses that are driving more plant-rich diets, uh, you know, even Memphis meat, which is laboratory-grown meat that sort of takes away the all the environmental and the moral issues around me. Right, right. Which is pretty fascinating. I'm not sure I want to eat it, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, I'm an you, investor, so I have no... Uh, in Memphis uh, Meat? Yeah. All right, yeah, all right. Well, there you go. I think it's phenomenal. I, I think, think it's pretty interesting, yeah. I mean, when you look, I mean, it's all the environmental issues around meat eating is... Uh, first of all, let me just say, in Blue Zones, people ate some meat, but it was about five times per month. Yeah. Because um, they had to wait to kill the goat, and then they all ate the goat. I yeah. remember being in Nepal, they're like they're mostly eating rice and beans, yeah, and, then, this, and then they kill the goat, and they all have a feast, and then they wait to yeah, the and then goat. it's you know rice and beans, for, but they're they're delicious rice and beans. <laughs> um, but um, you know, you just look at all the issues around around uh, our meat eating, the health issues notwithstanding, but also just the um, carbon emissions and methane emissions mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. cruelty and yeah it it their people's eyes are open it's devastating i mean i think people are understanding the impact on climate on environmental degradation on you know even the sort of antibiotic use and yeah even the, even the ethical and moral issues are becoming more understood and i i think that's that's a challenge that you know is now being looked at by you know like big groups that are starting to face this and i think at this meeting it's the first time i've heard you know the power players start to talk about this politicians you know business leaders food companies it's really shifting it's fascinating so yeah, and it's the gen xers you know it's yeah. the, it's the it's not the it's not our generation mark we're yeah. you know we're we we're, all, we're over the hill meat, but yeah, yeah we're, we're screwed it's the 20 year olds who i just heard this morning that generation that, rep- that include 20 year olds they're eating about uh, 50% or five times more tofu than we did yes. and about a, and about um, seven times more 
um, non-dairy milks, yeah, you know, the right. nut milks. Yeah. So, I mean, at least they're conscious, you know, who knows? Yeah, they're shifting the practices. And, and uh, you know, I, I actually heard something very encouraging today that the Grocery Manufacturers of America, which is a sort of a lobby group that's an association of all the food producers and, and the, you know, the big food companies, uh, has essentially disbanded that they were this powerful multi-billion dollar organization and all the food companies started pulling out like Nestle's and Campbell's. I mean, and, and they were they were not agreeing with the the trends, for example, transparency and GMO labeling in first of all in Europe there's no GMO because <laughs> they don't allow it. But here, you know, these grocery manufacturers in America were lobbying and, and actually paying for political candidates surreptitiously and influencing elections in a collusion with other uh, the, all the food companies. And and a lot of them said, this is not what we want to do, like Nestle's and Campbell's. And Campbell's is voluntarily eliminate all GMO yeah. from their food supply. So these are these are really great trends. But You know, big food and big egg and big beverage, they, they're often the whipping boys. But mm. I actually don't blame them. Uh, until about 1960, there weren't enough calories, mid-60s, there weren't enough calories in America to feed Americans. Right. So when we were in the Cold War, the mission was to produce, produce more food. Cal- yeah, yeah, produce more food. And... American innovation went to work, and we've just over-innovated. Yeah. The fact that there are so many calories out there, and marketers can take those calories and repackage them in a different a number of different ways, and and market that, make them taste good, and and market. They, I mean, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. They've just done it too well, and yeah. now the epiphany is that well, we've uh, over-innovated in a certain way. Now we have to recalibrate yeah. back for for health because. Because the unintended consequences, you know, like yeah, yeah. I think Michael Milken was saying that if you if you look at a, you know, how much benefit you get um, and the cost benefit ratio of eating French fries that are supersized or not, yeah, you might pay an extra quarter for the supersized French fries, but it costs you eight dollars over your lifetime in terms of chronic disease and medical bills and yeah. prescriptions. And nobody nobody factors that in. Yeah, it's you know, the externalities, it's not, right? Yeah, it's, it's uh, but. They, we we can we conveniently shut our eyes at those, and somebody's got to pay for it eventually. So. so you mentioned that you you think we're maybe focused on the wrong things when it comes to pursuing optimal health. So what should we focus on? Well, the healthcare system. Let's face it it um, it incents for sickness. Nobody makes money if you stay well. Pharmaceutical companies depend on you to get a prescription. Hospitals depend on you checking in and using their services. Doctors, excuse me, you, mm. you get paid the same if you if you cure them or kill them. True, uh, um, it's so. not based on outcomes. <laughs> like like producing yeah. a car that doesn't work, you still get paid for it, right? You don't get a refund. Right. So There's so no recalls on <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wait, let me do that over. Uh, so it was Jack Welch that the uh, um, CEO of GE famously said the point out the folly of incenting for A and hoping for B. So all the incentives yeah. in this country are behind sickness. Yes. They seek everybody, all business secretly wants us to get sick so they can get paid to fix us. There are almost no incentives for keeping you healthy in the first place. I know mm-hmm. Cleveland Clinic is one of the first places to wake up and smell the cappuccino um, <laughs> on that. But very, there are very few revenue models out there for companies who are really interested in keeping people healthy. Now, I know for employers, there's some... There are incentives uh, for employers, yeah. Yes, but but it, it is minuscule compared to... we uh, Out of the... Out of the uh, $3.4 trillion or so we, we spend on health care and its related expenses, uh, fewer than 10% of that, less than 10% of it is actually spent on prevention. Yeah. And, and 80% of that bill is for chronic disease. It's caused by lifestyle. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and, and yeah, fixing that. So, um, 
the problem is we aim at the wrong target. We're, we're putting all of our money, our effort, uh, the, the heroes and the rock stars are the, are, the, are the doctors fixing people. And the rock stars should be the people keeping us healthy in the first place. Yeah. Like Pekapuska, for example, in Finland, right? yeah. one of my heroes. Yeah, who's that? He ran the World Health Organization's Department of Non-Infectious Disease, and he created the North Karelia Project, which was the first project ever to change the environment 140,000 Finns and lowered the rate of heart disease by about 80%, uh, lowered the rate of stomach cancer by 60%, uh, not by trying to get people to change their behavior, but by changing the, the environment they lived in. Yeah. So. Well, let's talk about that because you, you did an extraordinary project in a little town in Minnesota. It was sort of a incubator for testing your ideas about the blue zones. And what you did was you didn't go in there with a heavy hand and say, oh, you should change your diet and eat this and don't eat that and exercise more. You just change the physical environment to change the behavior, which is this whole field of behavioral economics. And yeah. we're often naming it the wrong target. And you, you found dramatic reductions in medical costs, increases in productivity, increase in happiness. It was really profound. Can you tell yeah, us about worked. that project? And then you scaled it through other cities and other places around America. So if, if you go to places around the world where people are living a long time and people in their 90s are still standing on their head and water skiing at 100. It's not because they tried. It's not because they, at 50, got on a better diet or Not until they joined CrossFit or... Yeah, no. none of that. Uh, they don't, in the reality, they got don't know... Blue Apron, <laughs> delivering meals. No. Well, that might work. Not <laughs> um, but um, longevity happened to them. They have no idea. They, by the way, they don't have genetic superiority. The same genes we have, a heterogeneous pool of... of um, yeah. Um, population. Um, the, the, the big aha uh, in these blue zones areas around the world is that um, longevity was not something that was pursued. It's something that ensued mm -hmm. from the right environment. Yeah. So the healthiest foods, beans and greens and nuts and tubers and grains, are they're, they're the cheapest and most accessible. Um, the option to be lonely, which shaves about eight years off your life expectancy, wasn't there because you couldn't walk out your front door without running into somebody you know. Um, the the um, social structures were different. The families and the communities, yeah. yeah. Much closer, I would say, with social structures, and they were nudged into movement every twenty minutes or so. So people, you don't you don't find people sitting at their desk eight hours not doing anything. You know, they're gardening and they're doing things by hand every time they go to work or friend's house at occasions of walk. So based on that insight, and working with AARP at the time and the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, we created a blueprint for a city. Audition five cities, Albert Lee, Minnesota one, yeah. and we we're looking for cities that were ready and had good leadership leadership mm -hmm. that worked. The mayor both. who's on your team. Mayor, but you also want the private sector too. Yeah. These are almost all privately funded and publicly supported. And uh, we went about changing the environment, changing the policies so that uh, the municipal laws favored fruits and vegetables over junk food, uh, favored the pedestrian over the automobile, favored the non-smoker over the smoker. Uh, we created this blue zone certification for restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, and schools. Got about 30% of all the aforementioned certified. So those environments were healthier. And then um, uh, got 15% of individuals take a Blue Zone pledge to reshape their social network so they had some healthy people organized around a healthy activity, either walking or plant-based potlucks. You got the grandparents to walk their kids to the bus, and you That's sort right. of included people in the normal Walk cycle of life. life. Right. 
yes, a, a big big part of it is social. Yeah. How we connect people socially, and the other big part is shaping their environment. I mean, you you, you took the plates in their houses and move them from like twelve inch to ten inch plates, the smaller plates, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> like I hate that when I get the small plates because <laughs> I like well, eat a lot. Up more often, I like eat a lot, but you know that changes your behavior. You you change the, with the work with the grocery stores to put in healthy snacks and drinks at the checkout counter instead of candy and soda, and that changed the behavior of these people. And, and the, so the idea, all the things that you said, so we put in place probably 70 or 80 of those defaults and nudges. So people don't even realize it. But as they travel through their day, from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed, they may rec receive 20 or 30 little nudges, sort of the Adam Smith silent hand, yeah. um, pushing them towards um, marginally better uh, health uh, choices without them yeah. even knowing it. And it makes a huge difference. So over about a two-year period, we saw... Um, the healthcare cost and city workers dropped by about 40%. Unbelievable. And, and that wasn't our report. It was the city's own report. Um, we shaved about two tons off their waistline. And the average person, we took a representative sample of 25% of the adult population. Among those adult population, we saw an almost three-year jump in life expectancy. So that's self-reporting. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, it's indicative. In, 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 Indicates well, there. It has so many implications for how we address this global chronic disease and obesity problem. You know, and it's like we we need to rethink the delivery model and the environment. Paul Farmer talks about structural violence. You know, what are the social, economic, and political conditions that drive disease? And how do we reshift those to change the environment? Like he, yeah. did, he did that in Haiti with TB and AIDS where he didn't focus on better drugs or surgery, but by changing the structural environment, by having clean water, by having people have a place to live, by having them have a watch so they knew when to take their medications, by having their neighbor come and check on them. It was really profound. And I think, you know, we haven't applied those insights into healthcare. And I think we, we talk about prevention, but it's really about often treatment of chronic disease with lifestyle. Like we now know we can reverse type 2 diabetes with, with changing people's diet. And that's not something that we're actually focused on in medicine, unfortunately. So, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, really was was powerful was, you know, this this idea of of this sort of power nine that you came up with, which is this: what are the qualities of these societies, and what are the surprising things that are in there that we may not think are connected to longevity? So you you mapped out the characteristics of these people in the blue zones, and I read through them, and I, they were really pretty smart and pretty profound and relatively simple, and collectively they have a huge impact. Yeah. So the the first book I wrote, uh, Blue Zones. Lessons for Living Longer from the People Who Live the Longest. The idea was it, it told a story of finding these places and then the common denominators. And this Power Nine, I just came up with this. It's kind of a dumb name, but no, anyway. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> but, but I just wanted to, you know, curiously, no matter where you go and you see people living a long time, they're doing the same nine things. And they, they're clustered in four areas. Number one, they're moving naturally as opposed to exercise. So nudging to movement. They tend to have a sense of purpose. And they can identify, they articulate that sense of purpose. They're downshifting. There's things, sacred daily rituals to downshift them. So stopping and being as opposed to doing. Yes. But it's it's less conscious and more rote. For example, uh, Okinawan women or Okinawan, older Okinawans will always stop what they're doing. Before they eat, they'll say three words, hara hachibu which reminds them to stop eating when their stomachs are 80% full. Mm -hmm. uh, Adventists, who are the longest-lived Americans, they'll say a prayer. So there's some punctuation between the busy, mm -hmm. uh, their busy life and their food, so they're slow down and eat slower. Mm -hmm. uh, Costa Rica and Ecaria, they take a nap. 
Sardinia, <laughs> they do happy hour. That but, sounds you good. Know, happy but, hour, nap, I don't know. But everybody good. does it. So it's <laughs> not like you're the outlier by, right. um, you know, having a couple glasses of wine after work or taking a nap at three in the afternoon. So, um, and then when it comes to what, to what they eat, they're 95 to 100% of their dietary intake comes from plants. Uh, the pillars of all uh, longevity diets in the world, I mentioned before, greens, grains, whole grains, nuts, uh, beans, and tubers. So mm. no matter where you go, the, those five things make mm. up the daily diet. Uh, eat meat about five times a month. Fish maybe two times a week, mm -hmm. not less than you'd think. A lot of these communities are coastal communities, right? They look coastal. Uh, so they're Sardinia, uh, Italy, Ikaria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan, yeah. uh, the uh, Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, and Loma Linda. Uh, th three of those fives are kind of island. Uh, one is a peninsula. But the blue zone areas are always inland. They're mm. always up in the highlands. They tend to mm. live on a slope. In fact, one of the biggest correlates to live in a long time is the slope of the land on which you live. So live on a hill? Exactly. <laughs> yes. I live on a hill. I got a place up Well, yeah. And you, is that because you, you have to walk a lot up and down? Yeah. I, I mean, that that's, makes sense to me, but that, is, that was studied very carefully in Sardinia. And the, the, the steeper the village, the longer the people lived. So, and then the, the, the foundation, the Power Nine Foundation was um, keeping your, uh, investing in your family, being part of a faith, didn't matter what faith it was, and then really paying attention to the people you hang out with. Yeah. Uh, probably the biggest determinant of your long-term health. Or so if your friends are drinking beer and eating cheeseburgers and fries and drinking guess Coke. Guess what you'll be eating, yeah. And if you're all friends are drinking green juices and doing yoga, yeah, that's you'll be healthy automatically, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I wouldn't tell you to dump your, dump your old friends, unhealthy friends, I will say. Get new healthy friends? Yeah. Like <laughs> Kathy Freston's out there. They're healthy vegans. I know. That changed your life. How did that change your life? Getting well, I eat a lot really... more vegetables, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, you look more trim and healthy and fit than I've seen you in a long time, yeah. so that's good. Alcohol consumption went down by about 50%. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Depends where you started. Still yeah, be good. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, you talk about is cooking and longevity. And people say they don't have time to cook and it's a pain, it takes too long. You know, how do you address that? And what's the connection between cooking and longevity? Well, if you're if you're going out to eat, you're on average you're consuming 300 extra calories than you would if you stayed home because you can control the sodium, you can control the portion, uh, you tend to eat what you want. I mean, I, I just you hear this all the time. I'm so busy that I don't have time. Well, the reality, if Americans like took stock in their lives and thought about where that what things they really get satisfaction out of, yeah, uh, I'm guessing they could cut a lot of you know, soccer games or running off to the movie or where the kids need to be driven. Um, Seven hours of screen time for the average person in America. Is it that high now? Yeah. Two hours yeah. on the internet. Yeah, and that didn't even exist before. So. Yeah. So when people tell me they don't have time, I kind of roll my, secretly roll my eyes. So taking the time to cook, especially with your family, can be one of the most pleasant things. And I know it's daunting for people to begin with, but but um, if, you, if you really want to eat healthy, the one of the keys is um, having the skills to make a few. Uh, I, I would say plant-based meals. Uh, beans, I would say, is the 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 um, should be the main ingredient because they're hearty and they give you the protein you need. You got to cook them. We, we, yeah. I, we probably know the plant paradox, but but yeah. um, 
Um, yeah, raw beans definitely. <laughs> yeah, don't 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 crunch. You know, raw. Oh, I want to come back. I want to come back yeah. to that about how do you take care of beans so they don't, they, yeah. they take care of you as opposed to the way around. But the, the the investment we should all be making is to learn how to make a half a dozen plant based meals that we like. Mm-hmm. And you might have to fail at fifty percent of them before mm. you, you make it and add and like that or you know it didn't turn out well, but. Um, um, you know, Blue Zone's website, we tried to, we've tested now probably 500 and we picked the top 100 recipes. They're all free. Yeah. And um, try one of those recipes. They're all plant based. And uh, if you find a half a dozen you like, you'll make them over and over. It'll be easy. It'll be a default. And, and it, I, I could tell you that eating broccoli will add six years to your life expectancy. But if you don't like broccoli, yeah. forget it. You're not going to eat it. You'll right. eat it for a while because, oh, right. Dan Butner said. But right. six months, you know, you'll be back to burgers and fries. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I think, you know, we've been brainwashed to believe that cooking is drudgery, that it's difficult, that um, it takes too much time, and that, you know, eating healthy food is expensive. And these are all the the memes of the food industry that help subvert the kitchen. And so essentially, they've hijacked our kitchens. Now most families eat less dinner, less than 20 minutes together, all eating different meals, produced in different factories, all heated in the microwave and while they're watching TV or on their phones. And I think the, the, the power of the communal meal, the power of the family meal, the power of you know, celebrating food together and nourishment is something that I think has really left our society. 50% of meals are eaten outside the home, 2% were eaten out in 1900. And so that's created this huge shift in our health and our behavior. And I think you're right. We need to reclaim our kitchens. We need to actually teach cooking. I think people don't know how to cook. I, it's amazing to me that, you know, I went to this trailer um, um, where this family of five lived in South Carolina, and they, I said, let's just cook a meal together. They were all very unhealthy. When the father had diabetes and kidney failure, the son was like, you know, massively overweight. So was the mother. And they never cooked a meal in their home. They never stir-fried a vegetable. They didn't know how to make chili. They didn't know how to make a salad or salad dressing. They didn't know how to bake anything. It was, it was really astounding. They didn't have a knife or a cutting board. Uh, you know, we had to cut uh, sweet potatoes with a butter knife, which is not easy, <laughs> or chop onions with like Put a kit, you know, yeah, table yeah, yeah. And And so I showed them just how to cook one meal, and they realized how easy it was, how fun it was. We did it together. That's a great idea. And it was like this family lost literally 300 pounds as a family by like, just simply it's cooking. It's like losing two children. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's astounding. I did this again with another family. It was like they lost six of them, lost 335 pounds by simply... How many times did you have to teach it to... Once. It was one meal. It was just amazing to me. It was just... Wow. So they just... You just gave... They, the, I said, here's all the junk through. that you're eating. Here's all yeah. the junk that you're eating in your cupboards. Here's what's in your food. And I showed them the labels. I showed them the ingredient list. I explained what the foods... Well, there weren't even foods. Things were in there, that what they were doing to their health. And I showed them how to just prepare a meal. And I gave them a little guide on how to eat well for less. And I gave them a cookbook. And I said, you can try this. You know, And I didn't know what's going to happen. And uh, it was really extraordinary. And they, they said it wasn't that more expensive. They live on food stamps and disability. And I think, you know, we need to sort of break down this myth that, you know, we need convenience as, as the major value. And I, I know, you know, I've learned basic cooking. So I'm very busy like you are. And I've learned simple, simple meals you can make really quickly without a lot of fuss and that are nourishing and delicious. Let me give you two pieces of advice. Yes, please. <laughs> the crock pot yeah. and high quality glass Tupperware. So, yeah. so for storing your leftovers. Sto- yeah. Well, I, Sunday is my day 
because I, you know, I work, I travel all the time, but I, I usually, I have a half a dozen crock pot meals of Sardinian minestrone and Icarian stew with fennel. Mm. And um, all the ingredients, I can chop it. I wake up in the morning, chop it up. It takes me 15 minutes, throw it in the crock pot, turn it on. At dinner, I have bubbling deliciousness waiting for me. Yeah. And we'll have dinner that night. And then I'll take the, the, all the leftovers and I put them in these glass one-serving containers and they have a plastic top. And I freeze them like that. So it's like a big hockey puck. So yeah. when I go to work, you know, I like to bike to work. I'll just pull one out, throw it in my briefcase because it's frozen. Yeah. And then when I get to work, I take the plastic top off, I throw it in the microwave. So yeah. it's so easy. It and then is. I yeah. you know, put the top on, bring it home to wash it. Right. But um it's so so the, those meals cost me probably a dollar and a quarter. Yeah. Um, they have as much protein as a, a, a regular hamburger. Mm. Um, a healthier program, um, fiber. A lot more phytonutrients, vitamins, minerals. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's like a, it's like one giant supplement. Yeah, a stew of healthy amino acids, and and um, yeah, it gets me through the day. So the bean thing is is interesting because you know you talk about how a lot of these cultures consume a lot of beans, and there's been a lot of popular books out there lately saying that lectins are an issue and beans are concerning and that they can cause autoimmunity and inflammation, uh, but you didn't really find that. And, and you sort of talk about actually how to prepare them to minimize some of these adverse consequences of beans. And when you look at these traditional cultures, they had very sophisticated ways of actually combining different foods, of cooking them, of breaking down these things that actually may be problematic. So can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that was unfortunate propaganda about that bean. So I, about the lectins, you mean? Yeah. I mean, yes, if you eat them raw, they're a problem, but... I mean, here we have 70% of Americans are obese, a third are pre-diabetic, dropping dead of heart disease, and we're worried about lectin for crying out loud. It's, right. it's, it's silly. Right. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, the, the, the five cultures who are living the longest were eating beans almost every day and probably a cup of beans. And I would say that, I mean, as long as you soak them, cook them to a boil, the lectins aren't an issue. But the big issue pressure is- pressure cooking helps too. Pressure cooker will will double and the, the kombu. Issue. What does that do? The seaweed. Yeah, seaweed. If you soak it with seaweed, uh, if you soak it, takes it care with, of the gas problem. It helps the gas problem. The reality of the gas problem is this: you're if you're eating meat, cheese, and eggs all the time, your gut bacteria is is uh, going to um, proliferate to di to optimally digest meat, eggs, and cheese. Sure. When you shift, and all of a sudden, if you if that's all you're eating egg McMuffins, and then all of a sudden you shift to a healthy bean-based uh, food, oh, yeah. your 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 uh, gut bacteria is going to say, what the hell is going on here? It's going to be a war. Yeah. <laughs> but that war only lasts for about a week or a week and a mm -hmm. half. And then all of a sudden your gut bacteria shifts so it can break down those long-chain carbohydrates that are in beans mm -hmm. to a digestible carbohydrate, and you don't have that issue. I, I eat beans every single day. I have zero issue. And you, and you talk about how to start out with these smaller beans, like rather than kidney beans or lima beans or fava beans. Start with lentils and yeah. beans that are easier to... Fava are the, fava are the ga gassiest right. if you're not eating them regularly. Yeah. But again, if after two weeks, if you start with lentils it, or peas and move your way and up. And that's an important thing that people don't realize about the microbiome and the role it plays in all chronic disease, including obesity and diabetes. And so the way to cultivate your inner garden is by eating a lot of plants, by eating a lot of fiber-rich foods. I like that, inner garden. Yeah. I mean, we got to tend our inner garden. We got the we got a lot of weeds growing in there that yeah. are causing disease. And the way you get the weeds out is you put in the good stuff and it crowds it out. So, you know, when you look at these traditional cultures, and I, I, they've done this, you know, in, in um, 
Burkina Faso, Faso in Africa, they looked at the microbiome of, of these people eating more traditional diets and then compared to Western diets and what the microbiome is in there, and they're completely different. And you know, th this is really an important thing that, that I think probably is happening in these cultures where they all have much healthier digestions, much less autoimmune disease, much more uh, anti-inflammatory diets, which is, which is really what's driving their longevity. Because we know the longevity is really related to two things. One is inflammation or lack of it, and two is you know, your ability to handle sugar and insulin. So insulin sensitivity is another is a huge driver of longevity. So all the things that you're talking about help those, mm -hmm. help those properties. Yeah, the, the bacteria that favor meat, cheese, and eggs are going to also produce as a byproduct uh, inflammatory right. um, biochemicals. But it's interesting, though, in the context, like, you know, was, I, uh, this guy at Cleveland Clinic did this interesting study, Stan Hazen, where he, he took uh, meat eaters and then measured a molecule called TMAO. You know about this data? Yeah, yeah. And he measured this molecule that seems to be linked to heart disease. Uh, and then he somehow convinced vegans to eat a steak and then measured their levels, and they didn't produce this nasty molecule, even though they were eating the steak. Oh, interesting. So and it's, got... be it's because they, they had healthy gut bacteria yeah, that yeah, was yeah. not producing these chemicals. So, interesting. you know, and there's some interesting data on, like, you know, meat and, and whether it's harmful or helpful. And a lot of it has to do with, like, what the context of the overall diet is. You know, when right. they looked at meat eaters and vegetarians who shopped at health food stores, they had both had their risk of do death reduced in half. When they looked at meat eaters who eat a traditional, you know, unhealthy diet, which typically was what meat eaters do because everybody thinks meat's bad for you. So people who eat meat are basically unhealthy and don't care about their health. They weighed more, they smoke more, they drank more, they ate less fruits and vegetables, they didn't yeah. exercise. That's you know why we see these trends in these correlation studies. But you know, you you look at, you know, what is the overall context of your diet? Like these populations had low amounts of meat. It was more of a condiment or a condiment, I call it, you know. That's what Thomas Jefferson characterized meat as a condiment. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And it's like that. You go to, like, I used to live in China, and, you know, it was mostly vegetables with a little bit of, piece, a few pieces of meat in there. Right, right. It wasn't right. like a 32-ounce steak with one string bean and a, yeah. sweet, <laughs> and a baked potato, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, I, you know, my, my view on meat-eating, I mean, in all honesty, in Blue Zones, people did eat meat. It was, you know, they typically knew the name of the animal, and they took care of the animal for yeah. a long time, and then... Jimmy the goat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was time for the wedding. Um but it it was uh, uh, infrequent, often as a condiment. But for my Blue Zones work, and I work now in uh, 26 cities with mm. 26 Blue Zone projects, and I have you know website meal planner. We made the decision to stay 100% plant based on what within the Blue Zone uh, family because I find that you know I used to talk about the fact that people in Blue Zones ate pork. And, yeah. and people would say, you know, when you talk to a population, they go, oh, my God, pork? They eat Bacon. that in the blue zones? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have my, you know, pork chop for lunch yeah. and, and uh, pork for rolls for dinner. So I, I, um, the, the, the longest-lived American cohort are the Seventh-day Adventists, and Adventists who are either pescatarian, which means they eat up to one serving of fish a day uh, and are otherwise 100% plant-based, or... 100% plant-based. So um, if you're eating 100% plant-based, most people that you can pretty much turn off your brain if you're eating a whole food, uh, diverse, you know, the five foods I was talking about, mm -hmm. you can be pretty sure you're getting all the nutrients. So there's some argument for pregnant women or... Yeah. Um, 
um, you know, especially older people have a harder time digesting protein. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just figure within the Blue Zone aura, uh, 100% plant-based and outside of Blue Zones, people can do whatever they want. It's true, you know, but there is some evidence that, you know, long-term vegan diets can lead to nutritional deficiencies unless you supplement, such as B12, B12 yeah. omega-3 fats, vitamin D, iron, and, and even, you know, protein. As we get older, there's some studies that show that people who eat less protein when they're younger do better, but as they get older, you need more protein for muscle mass. And there's a real sort of scientific debate going on now about, you know, the protein requirements as we get older and muscle mass. And muscle mass is the single determinant of your insulin sensitivity, your hormone levels, and aging. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you need three cups of beans to get what you'd get in a, you know, six ounce piece of fish or chicken, right? So how do you, well, how do you reconcile but, that? But, uh, you know, spinach, ounce for ounce, you get more protein out of spinach than you would out of beef. So the it's thing is, true, if you're... true, but you need an ounce, of, an ounce of spinach is like a ton of spinach. The, and the, the, I, I figured out you need like, I think, 84 cups of broccoli to get what you'd get in like your daily protein requirements if you were eating... Yeah, if you're just eating broccoli. <laughs> yeah. Eating bro yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, according to the CDC, the average American gets about twice as much protein as they need for, so to your point, mm -hmm. yes, when you get to be 70 or 80, you may need a more easily digestible form of protein. But I would argue that most Americans, our, our disease comes from overeating mm -hmm. and overeating yeah. the, the wrong kind of the food, which yeah. is usually meat. Not always. I mean, there's a few, 1% of meat is, you know, grass fed. And if we ate sure. it once or twice a week, there'd be no problem. But the reality is yeah. to send the message that it's okay to eat meat or the longest lived people in the world eat meat people take it the wrong way yeah. and if we continue eating it the way we eat it and we continue as experts keep sort of endorsing it right of course people want to hear it people right. love so nothing more than dan buter say eat, right, eat right. your pork right because right. it would justify you know bacon tastes good right i know a guy, i met a guy who's a baconitarian good. he only eats vegetarian vegan except yeah. for bacon <laughs> yeah, i can't wait to see him when he's 70. <laughs> um so I think, you know, I, I, I personally take it upon my, myself to be kind of an evangelist to bring people more. Yeah. I, first of all, I know not everybody's going to go over and be vegan. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think everybody should necessarily be vegan. But if I can pull them from their, you know, on average two servings a day to two servings a week, I feel like I've done a big Yeah, service. no, clearly. I mean, most, most of our diet, 75 to 80% of our diet should be plants at a yeah. minimum. And the problem, and, you know, they, they say everything in moderation. Well... People don't know what moderation is. No. And you're right. Defining the quality of the meat matters. If it's all a like grass-fed bison from yeah, Montana. Yeah, but nobody gets that. That's different, right. Yeah, and it, but that's inc it. increasing. There's an increasing movement to shift agriculture from factory farms to... Yeah, but there's, there is no way that 320 million people, if we all had a serving of grass-fed beef every day, there would, there's not enough land in Absolutely. America to feed. So right. the reality is we end up defaulting to the factory-raised beef and pork and chicken. Yeah, and right, and that needs to stop. Absolutely, it's it's a huge issue. And I, think I could sell a lot more books if I if I endorse meat, but I'm not going to. Well, it's it's an interesting dialogue right now. I think it's it's still emerging, and I you know I'm sort of on the fence about it because like I'm just need to see the data on regenerative agriculture. You know, if it's true that we can sequester all enough carbon to take us back to pre-industrial era, that we can produce larger amounts of meat, not necessarily the amount that we're producing now, which I don't think is sustainable, uh, and that would reverse climate change, hold soil, water, and actually produce healthier animals. Essentially, have you ever looked at the, the uh, Plains Indians uh, at, the, uh, at the turn of the century? This, they were like the highest number of centenarians of any population, and they lived primarily on bison. 
How do we know that, that they were the highest? I, th- I think there was data, census data that was collected. Um, I mean, of course, maybe they didn't know when they were born. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can guarantee you that. Maybe they, they were just not... looked 100 Yeah, because <laughs> so they were out in the sun I, all well, day. You know, they used to think the Hansa Valley of Pakistan and uh, the Vilcabamba Valley of Ecuador. Uh, and same thing with the plane industry. When you don't have accurate birth records, you always get age exaggeration, always. Right. So. We're always thinner and old and yeah. live longer than we actually. We didn't. Are. We didn't really have decent record keeping in the United States to the like nineteen fourteen. So. So one of the things you've done to help make it easier for people is you've created this new app called the Blue Zones app. Yeah. Uh, tell us about how that works. What the benefits are. How people can find it and use it. Yes. So it's. It is a tool, very quick and very easy, that helps you. You you load in your dietary restrictions. You load in how many people you are. You load in if you like to eat a lot, if you're trying to eat for uh, immediate health or for longevity, and it generates uh, not only grocery lists but also recipes. And uh, if you live in certain cities, it will actually place your order with the local grocer and the... uh, Show up at your house. Yeah, it will show up at your house ready to go. And And does it come with cooking videos, how to prepare the recipe? Because that would be awesome. That we're waiting for Mark Hyman to come in. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do it together. We'll cook yeah. some great meals together. <laughs> no, Get the but crock it took pot a, out and yeah. <laughs> chop in. It's the newest thing I'm actually very excited about. Because like you, so I started out with Blues. I was talking about purpose and the importance of the family and yeah. downshifting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you realize that the runway for health for most Americans is what we eat. Yeah. It's through our mouth. We yeah. eat three times a day. There are networks. People love to eat. So in the last year or two, I've been really focusing on food and trying to really think through what the longest-lived people ate and how to translate it for American populations. Mm-hmm. And the meal app is one, and, and um, these recipes that we, we've uh, curated. And I'm also I'm doing a book with National Geographic now and another story for the magazine where we've gone back to all five of the Blue Zones areas, mm. got people over 70 to cook for us because in all the blue zones yeah. areas since about 1970 there's a big sea change. change. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. started they started adopting the standard American sure. diet. So their their health is starting to go to hell. Uh, but we captured we had these old people cooking their traditional recipes and they're all peasant. They're delicious. They have hundreds of years of culinary wisdom yeah. baked into them. And the techniques and the and the amounts and the, and the sure. way they cook them. So and I had this great photographer, David McLean. I think he's the best photographer at National Geographic. Shoot the setting, the preparation, the people cooking, the final dish, and then I'm trying to take the science. So the final book will be kind of a, a blend between an, a cookbook and a National Geographic. I article. love that. Well, if you ever need a doctor to go along your trips, you know, trip travel. There we go. <laughs> I'm down. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. All right. Okinawa next week. <laughs> so if you were king for a day and had the power to change our landscape around health and wellness and longevity, what would you do in terms of policy, law, change the community? Oh, I how love would you, that question. I've you, thought about that. Yeah. Uh, number one, I'd raise the price of gas. You'll hate me for people are gonna <laughs> hate spit on my grape for this, but I, <laughs> That's okay. I raise the price of gasoline to fifteen dollars a gallon. Mm. Uh, that will drive us out from behind our steering wheels onto our feet, which is about half of the problem. And if you have olive oil, you get thousands of miles per gallon, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I want people. You know, the happiest. I just wrote a cover story on happiness for National Geographic. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, I the, saw that. The happiest people in America. Uh, are living in places where it's very bikeable and walkable. There's a very high correlation. And 
we're not going to start desi- designing our our cities for humans until we wean ourselves from the car mm-hmm. habit we have. The amount we've driven over the last um, since 1980 is about tripled. Mm-hmm. We, spend, we spend way too much money in our car, and then you know the biggest problem. I, I, okay, so I'd, I'd say part of the problem with what we eat is our you know, eating as much animal uh, food as we do. And the reason we do is because the inputs, the corn, soybeans, wheat, are so heav- heavily subsidized. Mm-hmm. You know, the real cost of a $5 hamburger is probably $80. Exactly. If you take all. So if we actually had to pay the real price of a hamburger, we'd eat it once a week, you know, which would be fine. What's the um, real cost of a can of Coke, right? Yeah, same thing. same thing. You know, all these there's all these subsidies. So, uh, so I would take away those subsidies, those agricultural subsidies, that uh, enable us to buy these really cheap inputs and then create these pretty unhealthy, pretty unhealthy foods. Mm-hmm. And those, by the way, came under Nixon because the price of meat and milk were going up, and he thought it was bad to get elected in that environment. And so he changed agricultural policies to promote the production of excess food at lower costs. Earl Butts. Earl Butts, and I, yeah. And I, and I, yeah. <laughs> that was his real name, Earl Butts. Yeah, it was, yeah. Secretary of Agriculture yeah. under Nixon. And, you know, it wasn't a bad idea then, actually. You know, we mm. didn't have an obesity problem in 1968. We know? thought we did, but we did <laughs> Yeah, it was about one-third of what it is today. So, and then I think in schools, we teach kids how to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the no child left behind, instead of teaching math, they should be taught right away. There's a very... Um, successful program in France called the EPOD program that teach first graders. It's a six-week program that teach first graders what a vegetable is, mm-hmm. what it smells like, what mm-hmm. it sounds like, mm-hmm. finally what it tastes like. And there's so many kids. We work in the beach cities of of, uh, of uh, California here, and about 40% of the kids in that community could not correctly identify a banana as a fruit. Mm-hmm. So, or yeah, Jamie Oliver did that show where he looked at in West Virginia these kids trying to ask them what an eggplant was or a tomato or an apple. They couldn't yeah. identify them. So, I mean, the, what we eat it drives our productivity, it drives our healthcare costs, it drives our happiness. We should be teaching this in the first grade, mm-hmm. like math. It should be it should be a, a basic skill, and also basic school performance is driven by what kids eat, right? So exactly. we have this huge achievement gap where we're, yeah. you know, you feed the kid cocoa puffs for breakfast, and he gets a spike in insulin, and then he, he crashes, and during math, he's not an off. And all the dyes and the colors and additives cause these kids to bounce off the walls. It's it's a it's a problem. So what else would you do if you were a king? Yes. So I would uh, I would limit the number. I'm not saying there shouldn't be fast food, but uh, you can put cities can choose to limit the number of fast foods. I wouldn't have any billboards at all any place. The happiest cities in, in America have no billboards. Who likes billboards, by the way? Nobody. Except the guy who owns them and the advertiser. There is a direct correlation between the amount of billboard junk food advertising and the obesity rate of the, of the adjacent population. And food marketing as a whole. Yes. Billions of dollars. So uh, a law that completely eliminates that, I, I would... I would um, probably make sodas a lot more expensive they are. They're the number one source of mm-hmm. refined sugars in the American diet. I would say second only to tobacco yeah. as a public health menace. And we ought to... We Actually, ought to, they've exceeded uh, in terms of global chronic disease. Obesity and diet-related diseases is far outstripping smoking now. I didn't know that. But yeah. the, so, so, so the industry ought to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Or... or we ought to pay the real costs for it. Somebody, yeah. And that would make the problem go away. Right. 
So I, it would make me unpopular with people no, that's love good. Coke. But. No, all the externalities have to be included in the price. You know, and, uh, Prince Charles talked about accounting for sustainability in his book, The Future of Food. It was a speech he gave at George Washington University. and basically said, you know, we're not accounting for all the hidden costs of the degradation of the environment, uh, the climate change, the loss of soil, the depletion of our water supplies, the chronic disease burden, the educational productivity losses and kids who can't function and go to college. I mean, all those things are not included in the price of the food we're eating. And we've, you're right, we've subsidized food so that fast food and junk food is 40% less and fruits and vegetables are 40% more since the 1970s. Yeah, so that's well, why, why are people, now you know why people are buying those things. The last thing I do is I take a big chunk of the healthcare budget um, and probably you know, tighten up on the number of heroic uh, interventions we, that typically are very expensive and shift that money to prevention. Yeah. So... Um, Costa Rica, which I just covered in this book, Blue Zones of Happiness, every man, woman, and child in that entire country has the right of one visit a year from a healthcare ambassador. They'll spend a half hour with you. They'll take your blood pressure, check you for, di for diabetes, for depression. They'll go out in your backyard and look for standing water. They'll look in your kitchen to look for signs of chronic disease. They'll give you a half hour of... Um, of advice, and if you if you're showing signs of a, early signs of a chronic disease, you're immediately sent to a local they call it Puesto de Salud or, or uh, hospital outpost. So they're catching chronic diseases before it's a three alarm six figure yeah. issue. Um, they spend one fifteenth the amount on healthcare that we do in the United States, and have about twenty percent lower rate of or uh, lower mortality, middle age mortality yeah. than we do. So they're healthier. They spend a fraction, but they're instead of spending a thousand dollars fixing the disease, they're spending a dollar to prevent it. And yeah. we ought to be doing that, but we don't have the political courage. Our leaders don't have the political courage That's to true. shift. That's true. We're, we're looking at food pharmacies as a sort of a medical intervention, That's a and great doctors idea. create prescriptions. And they found for a diabetic, a thousand dollar prescription that we pay for will save twenty four thousand dollars on the back end. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's pretty amazing. Well, this has been a great conversation. Yeah, like People great can Mark, find yeah. you where at bluezones.com. Uh, blue yes. And, it's amazing uh, work because it, it, it you know, combines the two things that I'm most passionate about, which is the power of food and the power of community and building that sort of social structures that drive healthy behaviors, which is like it's where all we have interconnected. To go. It's the, the diets and exercise, they don't stand on their own. I think of it, it's, it's like collagen. It's mm -hmm. like what holds your good-looking face in place. Is <laughs> well, it's collagen. everything together, right. And it's the sense of purpose. It's the right social network. It is living in the right community that hold the right kind of eating and physical activity in place so you do them for long enough to not get a chronic disease. It's amazing. Well, this has been Dan Butner talking about the Blue Zones, longevity and health, the doctor's pharmacy. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for listening in to today's podcast in the Doctor's Pharmacy with Dan Butner, talking about how we can all live long and well. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe at iTunes and also share it with your family and friends and leave a review because it matters to us. See you next time on the Doctor's Pharmacy.